Hello, everyone. Welcome to the inaugural pilot episode of another season of the Silicon Dreams. Last year, when we started the Silicon Dreams, we were talking to entrepreneurs in the Bay Area. This year, we are returning with, again, topics from the Bay Area and the global economy. And this season, the Silicon Dreams is going to be focused on hot topics like AI, ML, ethical use of AI, and the worldwide Web3 phenomenon. So when you think about Web3, you're thinking about a few different things, right? But probably the first thing that comes to your mind is cryptocurrencies. However, the world of Web3 goes way beyond just cryptocurrencies. And that's what we are going to be focusing on as we talk about the various aspects of Web3. Every other week, we are going to be focusing on Web3. So the topics would keep alternating between AI, ML, and Web3. Now, once again, I am Sonia Ahuja. I am your show host, continuing the love from our last season of the Silicon Dreams. This season of the Silicon Dreams is being brought to you by Orbis 86. I am the founder of Orbis 86, and Orbis 86 is a platform that is focused on onboarding people to the world of Web3 through arts, entertainment, and education. We will also have Asif joining us every other week as a host, as a co-host for topics on AIML. And Asif is the founder of Support Vectors, which is an educational institution here in the Bay Area, teaching people, you guessed it, AIML. So this week's pilot episode, we actually have two pilots. So this first pilot episode is going to be focused on Web3 and it will set up, it will basically set out the tone for the next few weeks on which topics we are going to be covering when it comes to Web3. Similarly, when you tune in to the Silicon Dreams next week on Radio Zindagi, we will talk about AIML and that pilot episode would help us set the tone for what topics we are going to be covering in this season of the Silicon Dreams when it comes to AI and ML. Today, joining me for the Silicon Dreams on this amazing episode on the world of Web3, we have Devin and Philip. And I am so honored to have these guests with me in the studio. They have been working in the Web3 space for a few years now. And I cannot wait to go and introduce them to all of you. So Devin, why don't we start with you? Tell a little bit about who you are. What are you doing in this wild west of web3 world and just give a short introduction to our audience here hey thank you for having us sonia hello everyone my name is devon um i've been in the blockchain space for a few years like uh, sonia said and slowly made my way into web3 as well uh currently i lead finance and um, supply chain transformation and initiatives in higher education and I am a co-founder for a couple different Web3 projects. One is trying to help onboard people through Web3 education and art. And the other is trying to put a hut on the moon. More to come about that. Thanks. A hut on the moon. That is something hut fascinating. Yes, a hut <laughs> on the moon. You know, we'll hear more about the varied use cases of Web3, what's happening in the world of Web3. That's what I said, guys. You know, the one thing you can expect is... This is not going to be an investment advice show on how to invest your money in cryptocurrencies, day trade, and make or break money. No, it's not going to be about that. It's going to be about the varied support structures, the varied use cases of Web3. So you understand the whole gamut of Web3 versus just a small piece of it, which again, you know, it's the cryptocurrency. So 
with that, let's go to Philip. Hey, Philip, welcome to the Silicon Dreams brought to you by Orbis 86 streaming on Radio Zindagi. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves to our lovely audience listening in today? Thank you, Sonia. Um, my name is Philip Ross. I've been in the Web3 space, like Sonia says, for pretty little over three years. Um, I've been working on, you know, youth, you know, and therapy. And also I've been working along alongside with uh, security and onboarding people and, with art and other, you know, musical and other things such as. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Philip. So let's go ahead and get started and let's talk about the varied use cases of Web3. So Devin, you just spoke about the heart on the moon. Let's get started with it, right? What are the top three things that fascinate you about Web3 that ain't directly related to trading Bitcoin or Ethereum on decentralized exchanges or centralized exchanges? You say that aren't or are? That aren't related to are just a cryptocurrency okay. or you know just a cryptocurrency trading in general. Because mm. I feel like everyone across the globe knows <clears throat> that you have something called cryptocurrencies and they could be traded. Mm -hmm. but people we want to introduce people to the world beyond that as well so maybe you know why don't we yeah. start with top so, two use cases yeah i mean a lot of the background and really one of the easiest ways to onboard folks is through exposure and just buying some crypto and that that really is one of the gateways because the first and primary use case of most blockchain projects is a transfer of value so mm -hmm. bitcoin was the first and we have many, many more, um, you know, digital assets or currencies out there. But really, one of the primary use cases is that transfer of value. Secondary with going into Web3 might be digital ownership. And in line with, say, um, putting a hut on the moon or basically a, a, a base on the moon, um, I don't know how many folks out here know this, but tools and technology such as navigation or our smartphones or camera phones cordless tools even baby formula came through space innovation absolutely so, yep so by trying to leverage not just um thinking through and finding new innovations for how we would be able to survive in space or on the moon and layering Web3 on top of that with digital payments, digital value transfer and communication, um, I think would be a really good pairing and a strong match. So we are talking about two use cases here, right? Like how do you use decentralization as a base for creating, a, creating an infra or creating a system in which value can be transferred? And the second use case we're talking about is literally digital innovation and how can decentralization help advance digital, not just digital, but innovation in general, right? And the kind of impact it can create on the human the human society as a whole, right? In yeah. lines with that, let's talk about Bitcoin. Bitcoin came out in 2000. Well, 2008 was when the white paper was published. And then January 2009 is when Bitcoin was officially launched. Now, Bitcoin does represent the transfer of value that we're talking about here. However, Bitcoin was specifically created 
to create a decentralized ecosystem where each one of us, each, each human being on the face of Earth, could technically be their own banks. So when it comes to the idea of being your own bank, I would love to hear from you, Devin, in layman's terms, how would you explain this phenomenon of being your own bank to a layman? Let me do my best here. Some of you might be better at that than me with explaining it in simple terms. But um, the way I think about that is um, like becoming unbanked is you essentially have your private keys or a essentially a fancy password that controls the funds that you might hold um, on a network. So you can think of like a traditional bank account as a spreadsheet with everybody's name and numbers associated to them. A blockchain or a distributed ledger is similar to say a ledger where you might have um, say a thousand different computers across the world storing pieces of that information where you would be the only one that would be able to access it and essentially are in full control of your funds to send and receive. Um, the one caveat I have with being your own bank is it does take a tremendous amount of responsibility. And I don't know about everyone else, but I am not always comfortable with that level of responsibility. So I do like to operate through some centralized means. But at the same time, having the freedom to opt out at any point in time through um, you know any of the mainstream blockchain projects, you know, gives me a little bit of a reassurance or peace of mind, where if I wanted to opt out through a centralized means to access my accounts, I can. But otherwise, going through some of those centralized, I would say, um, organizations makes it easier as far as having a really nice user interface to interact with. That is right. So when we're talking about centralized organizations here, we're referring to entities like Coinbase, Binance. If you guys haven't don't know what they are, they are normally referred to as centralized exchanges because when you're dealing with these exchanges, they are like custodians. So centralized exchanges in the Web3 world are like banks. When you go and deposit your money into the bank, you're essentially handing over the control of your money to the banks and your trust is important. So you're trusting that the bank as a custodian will take care of your funds. And when you need access to the funds, you will be able to get access to the funds. However, the banks need to keep circulating those funds and they need to invest further so they can make money. And that is where all of these crazy phenomenon that we look at, like bank runs, they come into play because banks are traditionally not liquid. So when you go and invest all your money into a bank or you deposit your money into a bank, the bank doesn't just take that money and save it in their vault. They will either go and get some treasury bills or treasury notes. And there are varying periods when you're investing with treasury. So you will be investing anywhere from one year to 10 years or in chunks of time periods, which are anywhere between four weeks to a whole year. But the banks are not necessarily liquid when you are trying to go and withdraw your money from the bank, right? And they also, it's not just the treasury that they invest in. They also invest by lending out the money, which is why in 2008, we had Lehman Brothers plus the entire housing market really collapse 
when Lehman Brothers collapsed, the Lehman Brothers collapse, guys, was the biggest collapse that we have seen in the history of humankind at this point. They filed for $650 plus billion of bankruptcy, which adjusted for today's inflation is close to three-fourths of a trillion dollars, in fact. And when they did that, it also crashed the entire housing market. And if I'm not wrong, about $13 trillion of value was wiped out from the U.S. housing market. That was how big the impact was. However, why did Lehman Brothers cash crash? You know, they had all this money that people had deposited in Lehman Brothers, and they made some bad moves with it. So they were investing in subprime mortgages and we're not going to go into all of that in details. But essentially, when they took money from people, the investments that they made, those went bad, that money could not be recovered. And then we saw we saw the ripple effect. You know, we saw all those dominoes topple over. Now with decentralized banking, what happens is you are creating a network across the entire globe that acts as a distributed ledger, just what Devin said. What is a ledger? A ledger is essentially just your accounting book. A decentralized ledger is a copy of this accounting book across multiple nodes globally. So you, first of all, you have access to this bank, your decentralized bank, 24 by seven. As long as there is at least one node running somewhere in the world, you have access to your banking system. Secondly, when you put your money in a ledger, on a decentralized ledger, especially that when you're putting it on chain, the one thing you need to understand is that form of currency is always just digital. So that's why cryptocurrencies are all digital. You don't really have paper currencies and crypto because the way all of this is managed is it's a digital store of value. And then everybody can see your transactions. At this point, you know, your transactions are very open, but people might not know your identity. However, they can see how you're transacting. And then as Devin said, this is like, and you could think about being your own bank, like you're carrying your own locker with your funds in it with you, and then you have a key. Now, if you lose the key and there's no way to break into this locker, whatever is inside it is gone. So that's why with great power comes great responsibility. And that's what we were referring to, that, hey, if you're going to be your own bank, Yes, you have to be comfortable with it because also as of today's date, you don't have FDIC insuring any of the funds that you put on chain. This is, however, a great savior for countries in Africa or in other places of the world that do not have established banking systems. Globally, we have over 1.8 billion people, guys, who are unbanked. The world's population is 8 billion and 25% of those people are unbanked because the banks don't deem them worthy clients. So how are these guys supposed to jump on the internet or supposed to sell services globally when they have no ways of accepting money from the global ecosystem? And some of these transactions, in fact, decentralization and decentralized finance can enable all of these people too. But there's a lot of empowerment that comes from decentralization. And decentralized finance is just one of those use cases. Now, since we are talking, since we are on this topic of, hey, you know, if you are your own bank, it comes with a lot of responsibility. Philip, you have spent your time in cybersecurity, right? 
Would there, can you quote maybe two or three instances of how people might lose their money if they are not careful when they start working on decentralized systems? Uh, signature attack, wallet drainer, and I'll simplify these. Okay, so let's just say a message comes in on your phone and it comes with a link. It'll say, hey there, and then it has like a link to click on. You know, of course, you're not going to think not, not of it sometimes. You know, you might even be thinking it's coming from a friend. Well, you click on that, and all of a sudden, you just gave access, you know, to your wallet. Now, this happens a lot, you know, with transactions also, you know. So when somebody connects their wallet to OpenSea, which is an exchange system, you know, it's no different than, you know, let's just say somebody lending somebody else money. But, you know, all of a sudden, somebody comes up and, grabs the money out of somebody's hand well this is what happens with a signature attack is that basically somebody writes this code that says hey i'm going to take you know like all this amount out of this wallet once this transaction is followed through and that's how i kind of simplify you know a signature or wallet drainer attack so a signature attack just great example right and if you are comparing to any of the scams we all have experienced over the past so many years, a phishing scam could be a great example. So guys, if you might remember there, and sometimes we still fall victims to these kind of phishing scams and phishing attacks, and that is unfortunate. However, if you remember with the email came a sleuth of spam mails landing in your inbox. And sometimes those emails would look like they are coming straight off from your banks. And if you were not careful and you would click on them, you would even get to a login page that literally looks like your bank's login page and you enter your login credentials and bam, bam, nothing happens. But the next thing you know, your bank account is all drained out. And this is similar to the signature attack that we're talking about here. When you click on a suspicious link and then you sign a contract without really understanding what are you signing, that is very similar to this bank account that we spoke of. At this point, essentially, most of these smart contracts, what they do is they are making you sign a power of attorney of sorts. And then all the horrible nightmares you heard about the power of attorneys being signed over to the wrong people, that's exactly what happens. The wallet with which you signed over this power of attorney, unfortunately, they drain it as soon as they get access to it. So that is a good way to also explain the signature attack. You know, Now, Philip, how do you think can people secure themselves that when they come into the world of Web3, they create a decentralized wallet, they start transferring money here and there. What could be two or three precautions that they should take to make sure that they are not falling victims to any of these scams and attacks that happen. Okay, I'll call this wallet hiking. So I would say, you know, once you're done with your transaction, you know, like you make sure that you're disconnected from any site, any websites with your wallet, you know, like um, you make sure that, you know, like you never have your, your, your words, your key phrase, you know, as we've called them, uh, you know, like, um, which is your wallet keys, you, you make sure that they're never on a phone device, they're never any notes, any password manager on your phone. Um, and 
to simplify that even more so uh you know like just also make sure that afterwards you go to etherscan even and connect your wallet and revoke any contract addresses this connect it an easy way to do that to make this simple is you will go to etherscan.io on the right side there's a more and when so you click on more we we shouldn't i mean you know we don't need to get into the exact okay. specifics but i if i was to simplify the steps that you were talking about right considering that people would come on ether because we also don't know where people are getting onboarded from for yeah. all we know people could get onboarded on bitcoin on cardano or on ethereum no matter what their steps are which is the reason why i'm saying you know we could spare some of the exact details and we would also have a topic on security where we could go into those details but guys just to sum up what philip was saying right when you're using your wallet you are generally entering into a contract when you're signing something. The first thing I would say is just following through with what Philip said. If you don't know a website, maybe start with a net new wallet. Don't say so that this is where you'll hear the terms cold wallets and hot wallets often being thrown around where hot wallets are the ones with bare minimum funds in them and you use them to connect to all of these different sites and stuff that you're not exactly sure of. Now, even when you're sure of websites, like OpenSea is a very reputable marketplace on Ethereum and multiple chains. However, OpenSea has also been hacked. So it's always a good idea to use your hot wallet for transactions. And then your cold wallet is what you're not connecting to any websites, but you use your cold wallet to store the majority of your funds, tokens, NFTs, whatever you have bought on decentralized ecosystems. And then if you are connected to websites to perform some transactions, going back to what Philip said, most of your apps will provide you a way to disconnect from the websites after your transactions are done. And I agree with Philip, it is worth the extra mile of signing a transaction every time you're connecting to the website than just being lazy, leaving it as is. And tomorrow there could be a vulnerability that is that somebody detects in the smart contracts or the code being used by that website. And if you're still connected to the website, damn, you could lose all of your money there, right? That could happen. Now that we've shed some light on security, like, you know, again, as Devin said, when you are your own bank, it does come with power, but it also comes with a huge sense of responsibility. You really have to be careful with what you're doing. Now that we have covered some of that security aspects, the one thing I would like to ask you, Devin, is, is there a certain project, a certain enterprise that you have seen building out on Web3 that has a use case which just connects the real world to digital assets? And you did speak about, you know, transfer of value and digital innovation. However, when not a lot of people can relate directly to the moon, Right? Like the things that happen in space, people don't really know about it. And I wouldn't be surprised if people did not know the fun fact that you mentioned where even baby food was a byproduct of the research that was done in outer space. If you talk about things on Terra, right, on planet Earth, not the Terra coin, <laughs> Terra, yeah, huh? that would be okay. bad. <laughs> so on planet Earth, things that we can relate to. Is there one particular use case in the recent years that you have seen that really jumps out at you? to see it being realized on blockchain very easily versus in the traditional world, it would have just taken forever. 
Yeah. So, I mean, just trying to go really basic, like when I think of onboarding people to just blockchain or Web3, I think of what would be the easiest way to learn and the easiest way to learn how to use, um, whether you're on a centralized exchange or if you're um, adventurous, adventurous enough to get like a MetaMask wallet or some other hot wallet, um, you know, just buying a cryptocurrency and figuring out how to send and receive it to yourself. Um, and, you know, that use case for me is still payments or cross-border payments, whatever you want to look at. That to me I'm... is the primary use case <laughs> because even with NFTs and all this other stuff, like NFTs are still sending value. Granted, there is the art behind it, but, you know, that art costs somebody, you know, time and effort in order to create. And if you're transferring art or selling art or exchanging it to me that's still value so transferring value across the say uh the internet <laughs> you know let's talk about one particular use case that you just mentioned yeah. here right cross-border payments that is a big use case and so mm -hmm. many people don't know how tedious it is to send money overseas yeah do you want to touch well, upon that like how I mean, is that expedited to the use of blockchain well Let's look at um, some of the more recent like retail, like bank friendly uh, payment, you know, transfer like Swift uh, applications. So there's Venmo, Pay PayPal has been around for a long time. You know, they still have, you know, um, a few dozen different touch points on the back end between like if I was to send money from myself to either of you guys. And on top of that, there are still the potential fees. You know, if the bank doesn't already have a deal, then you're paying one to, you know, 3% on top of that. Even 5% or 7% yep. on international payments. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's very inefficient. They're still just tracking it all on a paper account somewhere as well. Uh, where blockchain, you know, it's on that distributed ledger, um, you know, globally distributed. And if I wanted to send value to either of you, I know that it's going peer-to-peer -peer and it's not going through any intermediary unless I'm going through a centralized exchange. Absolutely. So most of the times when you're sending money internationally, the settlement periods themselves are a couple of business days. Now we have had some quicker international payment options. Sometimes with Western Union, you can send cash from here and somebody can receive cash within a couple of hours. There would be fees associated with, with it. The fees are generally pretty high. But yep. if you just look at bank transfers, most of the times with wire transfers, you're paying anywhere between $25 to $40 to send money. Now, $40 in a country like Somalia is a lot of money. Now, imagine if you just wanted to send $50 to someone in Somalia. You just wanted to donate $50 to someone in Somalia. The way to do it today is going to cost you a shit ton of money just to transfer money to Somalia. So sending $50 is inefficient if you're using the traditional banking systems. And a lot of countries in Africa, there are other countries in the world as well that are actually not connected to SWIFT. For all of you nerds and geeks out there and the folks from FinTech or finance in general, you know that globally SWIFT is the standard across which the protocol over which money is sent and received. So if there is a country that is not even part of that SWIFT gang, like as you know, one of the ways in which Europe, NATO was trying to curtail Russia was by saying, hey, you know, we are not going to be sending these SWIFT transfers to Russia anymore. Now, I'm not going to get into the political side of it, right? However, 
if SWIFT is disabled, people cannot send money to Russia. And that is why for all of the Southeast Asian crowd out here listening to the show, if you know India, but they are gas supply you know but the petrol and diesel that india needed from russia by paying them in indian rupees because again they couldn't pay in us dollars since swift was cut off whether that's right wrong i'm not even going to get into that but the thought is there are many countries that are not connected by swift if you want to send money to those countries good luck you you really have to hit your head against a wall to figure out how to do it on the other hand even if there is an established setup the sending money from US to a bank in Nigeria. You can do a transfer, a wire transfer, but it's going to cost you anywhere between $25 to $40. $50 is a lot of money in Nigeria too. So if you want to send $50, do you want to pay $25 in fees? That's a big question. Whereas with blockchain, those transfers are instant, almost instantaneous. Within a few seconds, you can transfer money from US or from any part of the world to any part, any other part of the yep. world. I'm not paying $15 to send $20. Absolutely not. You're not doing that. Yes, there are chains like Bitcoin and Ethereum where transaction fees are higher, but there are also other chains like Hedera, Polygon, on which you're just paying a couple of cents at most to transfer that same money. And those couple of cents also do not go to the founders of these chains. Those couple of cents are actually being distributed to the decentralized validators and we'll talk about these things later on guys but essentially when you think about decentralization and we're talking about nodes essentially it's like a peer-to-peer transfer protocol that we're talking about here where everybody in the world can come and be a validator support the network and everyone who is supporting the network as a validator as a node providing the infrastructure to run this decentralized ecosystem they get rewarded whenever you're paying those minor fees. And yeah, with that, we are coming towards the end of our 25-minute segment here on Web3. You are listening to the Silicon Dreams on Radio Zindagi, and this is brought to you by Arbus 86. And before we wrap up, I'm going to go to you, Devin, and then to you, Philip. I want, to, I want you to just spend like 30 seconds talking about the one use case of Web3 that you see coming up in near future that really excites you. Devin, do you want to go first? I have to think about that a little bit more. Um, let's go to Philip first. That's okay. Sorry if we All right, Philip. Well, actually, I'll give you both times. Both of you, I'll give you time to think. Let me talk about one thing that excites me a lot. What excites me a lot is really this whole idea of decentralization itself. We spoke about decentralized finance where people could be their own banks, but there's a huge focus on even decentralized infrastructure. So guys, you know that Africa is the poorest continent. However, data access rates are the most expensive for the continent of Africa. Why? because they have monopolistic internet service providers. And whenever you have a monopoly, there isn't a lot of competition and they can jack up the rates the way they want. With decentralized infrastructure, people with just computer setups with their mobile phones, these guys could form a network of decentralized internet service providers, for example. And the cost of accessing the internet becomes really cheap for the average Jane and the average Joe. And being able to build on these decentralized infrastructures that reduces cost of accessibility, 
really excites me because this means information can now be accessed by people without without caring about the borders that they are confined by. So anyone in any part of the world can get access to this information and they can get access to it really cheap. And whenever you have access to the right information, it opens the doors to a lot of opportunities. And with that, when you get access to opportunities, you are able to try to close that chasm of wage disparities, health disparities, the different demographic disparities that we see across regions. So that excites me a lot. You know, I can't wait to look at more decentralized infrastructure use cases coming up. What about you, Philip? You touched on one of them, you know, which was like, you know, the, the internet, you know, and, uh, you know, transactions, you know, like, and, and the reason I say that I'm very excited about that was because, uh, you know, like there was some skateboards that were donated to some people in Africa and they were trying to, you know, I mean, learn, just learn how to skate and have a great time. And, uh, the problem was, was that the transaction fees was just way too high for them to even send the skateboards. Luckily, you know what I mean? Because of friends, there was some trade that happened that helped that out. But with DeFi, that could happen so much faster. And so can innovation, you know, and creativity. You know, I, I think peer-to-peer -peer creativity, you know, will become so much faster with this AI and blockchain technology that it's just going to be skyrocketing soon. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And you know, Philip, I think definitely AI, ML, blockchain are going to be great and pushing forward creativity, right? And innovation. What about you, Devin? What excites you? So it's it's hard for me because there are, I think there are many things, um, but it's hard to just pick one. But I would say the thing that is probably closest to having something with like true use case with true mass adoption is probably going to be somewhere on the gaming side. So web three gaming, um, because you have the digital ownership, you have the digital transfer of value, you have the IP. Um, and, and you have a way to now make money that never existed in the past. Like the only people, earn, yes, I know yes. the potential to earn, right? When yeah. I was in my grad school, a friend of mine got recruited by NVIDIA to play games. He was legit getting paid to test the games out. A lot of kids at college were jealous because not only did this guy get his hands on the latest versions coming out of electronic arts a year before they were released into the market, but he was being paid to play games on 36 inch televisions then on 36 inch screens and trust me you know at that time yes. yeah. 36 inches was a lot this is like back in 2006 right in india but now people who are gamers can actually get paid and not just by by twitching it but <laughs> not actually just by sponsors yeah not just by sponsors yes you know even i'm looking forward to the era of web3 gaming unlocking new revenue streams and creating a new economic system that didn't even exist in the past. So guys, you know, with Web3, we are moving into this world where our fundamentals themselves are changing. We are moving from monopolistic societies. We are breaking away from conglomerates to creating community-owned stores of value, to creating community enterprises, and 
we are marching towards creating a future in which all of us across the globe could have equal access to opportunity at the very least. So we are trying to create a more equitable future by building on these decentralized ecosystems where the most important requirement for getting onto a lot of these decentralized ecosystems really today is the internet. However, we also have relayers and other infrastructure components being built out that can help you get access to decentralized infrastructure without having a consistent access to internet as well. All of these things are definitely going to help us put Web3 in the hands of a lot of users, whether they know it or not, 10 years from now, every single of one of us would be working with something that's built on built on Web3. Just like two decades ago, people did not think internet was going to change the world, but here we are today. Almost all of us log into the internet every single day. And that's how Web3 would be 10 years from now. And at the Silicon Dreams on Radio Zindagi, we are going to be talking about all of these different use cases of Web3, the challenges that we see. We'll talk about safety, security, what to expect while you are in the world of Web3. So you do not feel like you're in the wild, wild west, but rather you feel like you're in safe hands and we are going to do our best to onboard you to Web3. And with that, this is Sonia. I'm going to sign off right now and we'll see you next Monday where next Monday we will talk about AI, ML, and the use cases of AI, ML, the ethical implications of using generative AI. That's the new buzzword. And then the week after, we will return with another episode of Web3. And Devin and Philip, thank you so much for joining us today on the Silicon Dreams on Radio Zindagi. And with that, my friends, families out there, thank you for tuning in. Remember to log into Orbis 86 and you can also learn about Web3 with the material and the blog posts that are created there.